you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 5. And if you're interested, this is going to be one of those days. I tried my best to not make it one of those days, but it's just going to be. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew 19. We're going to be in Genesis 1 and 2. That's never a good sign when it starts doing that right from the start, is it? We'll see. Um, Genesis 1 and 2, Deuteronomy 24, uh, all of these different places you can mark in your Bibles if you're interested. I'll have it also up here if you need it. Just look at it there. I'm even going to read a little bit from the Jewish Talmud, uh, which is like a Jewish history book. It's going to be so fun. I, I prom- at least it'll be fun for me. I don't, I don't know about you. But we're continuing on as we walk through uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And, and today we're getting to his section over lust and intimacy and marriage and divorce Um, And I've been trying to rack my brain to come up with some, usually I try to kind of have some little pithy story or way to kickstart a sermon, just to do some crowd engagement, and that's fun. Um, But what I've learned is looking at this is the best way that I can think to describe it is this is like, it's just Jesus's loaded gun on marriage. If there's ever anything that I've been taught as a kid, particularly a kid that grew up in the South, it's that you don't play with guns. You just, you don't play with it. In fact, we had a rule in my house growing up. My stepdad wouldn't even allow me to have a toy gun. Uh, Just guns are not toys. You don't get those to play with. Uh, So I don't know what else to do other than to just kind of launch into Jesus's teaching because far more than murder, which is what we talked about last week, I think we've all been impacted and hurt and disappointed and broken by each other's humanity's inability to uphold God's standard of love and intimacy. This hits a lot closer to home for many of us, and so I don't know what to do with it other than just to read it and just talk about it, what Jesus is saying. So let's dive in. We're going to do 27 through 32 this morning. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away, for it's better for you to lose one of your body parts than it is for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And it was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in the case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So as we dive into this, I think the best way I can say it, if I can just go ahead and tackle these two things together and to give you the kind of general point of what Jesus is is trying to communicate, and this idea of if we're going to be people intentionally like Jesus, then being intentionally like Jesus means we uphold God's standard for love and intimacy. Being Christ followers mean that we we look to the standard God set for love, for intimacy, and we uphold that the way he set it up. Um, By the way, as as I go through this sermon, I understand that these are kind of touchy subjects, so I'm going to use words like intimacy and and love. Um, I'll let you fill in things as you know about it. Um, but, But this is what Jesus is getting at, and he's expecting us to understand what God has said about it. Now, full disclosure, I want to start with that second part over divorce and remarriage. And I'll be absolutely honest with you, that surface level reading is a lot to wrestle with here. And I would say that Jesus isn't going into depth in this. He's he's giving kind of a taste of it to prove his point about fulfilling the law. Um, And then he moves on to the next point. But if you want a little bit more of an in-depth study on Jesus on this marriage and divorce and what does it all mean, uh, he actually goes into more in Matthew chapter 19. 
Matthew 19, verse 3, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, uh, hey, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? And then Jesus responds, haven't you read that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. There's so much that could be said here, but I wanted to read that point to get us then to Genesis. Because when Jesus is going to talk about marriage... Jesus isn't going to weigh in on all the different interpretations of his day. He's not going to try to debate with other rabbis. For Jesus, whenever he asks the question, what is God's standard for love and intimacy? What is God's standard for marriage? Jesus quickly just says, we have to go back to Genesis 1 and 2. Sometimes you'll hear people say, Jesus never talks about insert whatever sin is a hot button political issue today. Um, And I would say, yeah, he does. He says, go back and read Genesis 1 and 2. Go and look at God's standard for what God sets up at the beginning of time. And so I'm pulling this from another sermon over Genesis 1 and 2 over marriage. I'm not going to have time to focus on all of these, but I think Genesis 1 and 2 gives us a very clear standard of what God intends for marriage to be. So Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. Let me start there. I got five quick things for you as we jump into this. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So right from the stop, marriage has something to do with with family, with giving life. God blesses this marriage relationship between man and woman, between Adam and Eve, and he calls them to fill the earth. So absolutely, there's an element to that about having children, but it's so much more that God instills into husband and wife this this ability, this element that's a pattern and a purpose of giving life. So forming family bonds of safety and care and consistency, and, and sometimes that's literal, sometimes that's adoption, sometimes that's fostering. Sometimes that's caring for another person like a child or a grandchild. Sometimes that's investing in a younger couple and pouring life into them. In either case, God looks at marriage and he says, this is my means of establishing family, of establishing consistency and safety into my world. Marriage is about family. And then if you look at the next part of verse 28, the Bible goes on to say that marriage is also about a mission. To fill the earth and subdue it, rule the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, every creature of the sea and every one that crawls on the earth. I would just say that even before the fall in Genesis chapter 3, that God instills this relationship of marriage and he gives purpose and mission to humanity. God gives work to Adam and Eve. He gives a reason to live. They're not just hanging out in the garden singing Amazing Grace on repeat every single day. But they're actually doing something. They're tasked to go and to cultivate the land, to rule with God. And Genesis 1 says that they do that together. That they don't just exist for one another. Marriage is not Adam exists for Eve and Eve exists for Adam. It's that in their togetherness, they exist to work towards this mission that God's put them in the world. Then we can jump over to chapter 2. In chapter 2, we get a bit of a zoom in to this story. And it gives us a little bit more details. 
verse 18. Then God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. So marriage is about partnership, friendship together. Um, I know Haley did this on Monday night with some of you ladies in her Bible study, but I have to kind of duplicate it because it's really important. This Hebrew phrase here, helper corresponding, ezer kanegdo, uh, is really important because the Hebrew word ezer or etzer is uh, helper, um, and that makes sense, but it doesn't really encompass the full depth of what the word means. Uh, it's the ability to do something for someone else that they cannot do for themselves. That's what the idea is getting across. In fact, uh, outside of this and a couple of handful of times, it's mostly used for how God helps humanity. It's the ability to do something for Adam that Adam couldn't do for himself. And then it adds that word corresponding to or, or suitable helper, which is the opposite of. So it's this idea that man is here and woman is here, and they're both absolutely equally made in God's image, but God sets up Adam and Eve, man and woman, to be intentionally different so that they can partner together in a way that they could never do on their own. This is what Genesis 1 and 2 is conveying to us. And then we get to verse 24 of Genesis 2. We read that verse and we find that there's passion in this relationship. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and he bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. It's a statement on passion. Marriage is a person forsaking everything, even including their own parents, to join to this other person. I would just remind you, contextually, does Adam and Eve have a mother and father? No. So why is this inserted? This is why a man will leave his, did Adam and Eve have to leave, or did Adam have to leave a mother or a father? No, it's something written for generations later for us to say, this is what God has instilled into the marriage relationship, that we forsake everything for the sake of this person that we pursue. It's about passion for that person. And it's about bonding to that person, to, to leave husband or to leave mother and father and to join to spouse, to cling to spouse. Verse 25, both the man and his wife were naked and yet felt no shame. There's so much to be unpacked here, but I would just say that that idea is about a bond between husband and wife where in a world where I have shame and hurt that I don't want people to see and I want to keep hidden and masked away, my wife is someone that I can trust, that I can go and show those things to her and know that she loves me anyways, that I can bear myself and let her see without shame who I am because I know she has made a covenant relationship to love me. Now, I know this is probably not like the epitome of the most interesting sermon you've ever heard, but we have to start there. There's no way to talk about marriage and God's standard for marriage and love and intimacy if we don't at least comprehend what Genesis is conveying. This is the very first thing Jesus does. If you go to Jesus and say, Jesus, what do you believe about marriage? Jesus is going to say, go to Genesis 1 and 2. That's what I believe about marriage. Jesus doesn't have to give you much more commentary on that. He doesn't have to fill in a bunch of gaps for you. Now, he's going to to some extent. But if you want to understand marriage, you have to understand Genesis 1 and 2. God's view for marriage and love and intimacy, it's all about creating life through partnership and passion and bonding and then completing this mission to go and reign over creation. So, all of that being said, why does Jesus have to come in in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 and weigh, on this whole phrase, weigh in on this whole phrase, Certificate of divorce. 
Why does that even need to be a thing that's talked about? A couple contextual things to pick up on. Uh, remember, who is Jesus talking to when he's preaching his Sermon on the Mount or when he's talking to Pharisees? He's talking to Jewish people who would have at minimum have memorized the Torah. So when he says that phrase, certificate of divorce, you got to remember, they don't have just like Deuteronomy chapter 24. They have phrasings that's going to help them memorize different subheadings of the Torah. So can you guess what kind of the general subheading for Deuteronomy 24 is going to be? Something about certificate of divorce. So when Jesus says, you've heard it said, if you're going to divorce a woman, you just give her a certificate of divorce. He, he's quoting back to what Moses says in Deuteronomy 24. I'm just going to go ahead and assume you probably don't have the Torah memorized. I know I don't. So it's much easier to just go read Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. Actually, a couple of first verses of that text. If a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. If after leaving his house, she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the second man hates her, so we're just building on the hypotheticals here, and the second man hates her, and he writes her a divorce certificate and hands it to her and sends her away from his house, or if he dies... The first husband who sent her away may not marry her again after she's been defiled, because that would be detestable to the Lord. You must not bring guilt on the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Welcome to Jewish case law. I know you all have lots of fun reading Jewish case law when you wake up in the morning. But I would just say, this is, this is case law. And what I mean by that is this is not a commentary on here's the checklist of things that will determine whether or not a divorce is okay or it's not okay. This is about the aftermath of divorce, particularly in an ancient Near Eastern culture and the havoc that divorce wreaks on particularly women. What happens when a husband just kicks a woman out of his house and she's got no family to go and no place to land? Does she have to go... In an ancient world, she would have to resort to other things to, to survive, things that aren't really biblical, helpful, good things. So what Deuteronomy 24 is doing is it's trying to convey, hey, if a man is going to divorce this woman, don't just kick her out. At least give her a certificate that says she can go marry someone else. It's, it's case law. Which then what you do with case law is you have different people come in. We still do this with Supreme Court justices and stuff in modern America. Uh, is you look at what was the ruling, and then you try to interpret what that ruling means. It, it leaves open all of these questions to be deciphered. How exactly does one's wife become displeasing to her husband? What does it mean to have something indecent about her? All this got left up open to interpretation which it was the job of lead rabbis to interpret that and then convey it practically to the Jewish people. So we actually can go back and we can find writings from these Jewish rabbis attempting to interpret phrases from Deuteronomy 24, particularly rabbis like a guy named Hillel and a guy named Shemaiah. I know you guys are just dying to hear the words of Hillel and Shemaiah on Deuteronomy 24. Let me read them to you. This is from the Babylonian Talmud. You can uh, Google uh, G-I-T-T-I-N-90-A and find this if you're interested in looking it up and reading about it. Um, but it says this, Bet Shemaiah say, just aside, that sounds like caveman talk, Bet Shemaiah say. Um, Bet is the Hebrew word for house, so the house of Shemaiah. Maybe another way you could translate it is the people who follow Shemaiah say, or this is what Shemaiah taught. That's, that's what it's getting at. 
So the people who follow Shemaiah say, a man may not divorce his wife unless he finds out about her having engaged in a matter of adultery because she has found, or he has found something indecent about her. So Shemaiah looks at that phrase in Deuteronomy 24 and says, that term indecent is specifically referring to the act of adultery. That's when the husband can write a certificate of divorce. But Bet Halil says, the people who follow Halil say, he may divorce her even due to a minor issue, and it says this, because she burned or oversalted his dish. As it's stated, if he has found some unseemly matter in her, meaning that if he's found any type of shortcoming, this rock star Halil, and by the way, it's not that like Halil was a bad guy, he's got other great writings, but I think he kind of misses the mark here. He reads Deuteronomy 24 and he says, well, it says if the husband finds something indecent about her, if your wife burns your food, that's something indecent about her. Go ahead and find a new one. This, this is the guy that's teaching about a generation before Jesus. So his teachings are going all around the known Jewish first century world. Uh, they're starting to reinterpret Deuteronomy 24 to mean, hey, anyone can divorce his wife for essentially any reason. If you think that one's bad, here's another rabbi right after this. Rabbi Akiva says he may divorce her even if he found another woman who's better looking than her and wishes to marry her. As it's stated in that verse, and it comes to pass if she finds no favor in his eyes. Now we're so far removed from this. When we read Jesus' word, we miss this conversation that's going on in the background behind him. But Jesus, as a rabbi, Jesus, as a rabbi, uh, would have been expected to weigh in on these different debates and controversies. Uh, This is not all that unlike me as a pastor. Sometimes I'll have people come up and they'll say, Philip, where do you land on the Calvinist-Arminianist debate? Or where where do you land on the complementarian-egalitarian debate? Where do you land on the contemporary or the traditional debate? Where do you land on the charismatic cessationist debate? There's all of these things that you're like, I don't want to talk about this. Can we find anything else? This is what's going on in Jesus' world. Jesus, people are going to come up to Jesus over and over again. It's what the Pharisees are doing in Matthew 19. And essentially, they're going to say, Jesus, where do you weigh in on the Halil Shemaiah debate? For what reason can a man divorce his wife? Is it just adultery or is it for really whatever reason he sees fit? And so Jesus is going to weigh in on this in Matthew 19 and somewhat here in Matthew 5. And I think it's really interesting because as Jesus weighs in on it, especially in Matthew 19, you'll find that he's really not all that interested in giving an in-depth, comprehensive teaching on divorce and marriage. Jesus just doesn't play that game with them. Instead, what he's interested in is restoring his followers back to the original plan laid out in Genesis 1 and 2. He's interested in renewing and transforming their hearts, our hearts, to see God's standard for love and intimacy and then to uphold that standard of love and intimacy. Yes, there there are plenty of complex nuances to be talked about. What, What about abuse? What about desertion? What about adultery? What about a million other hypothetical things? I mean, what about when he leaves his toenail clippings on the coffee table? Like, that's gotta be grounds, Jesus. What about when she takes up every inch of the sink with blow dryers and hairbrushes and then gets mad at you for leaving the toilet lit up? Like, there's got to be something to talk about there, Jesus. And Jesus looks at marriage and God's establishment of marriage before sin ever enters the world and how in God's perfect design, divorce wasn't even an option. You didn't have to use the word divorce in Genesis 1 and 2 because there was a perfect union between husband and wife. And Jesus says, that's the standard we want to get back to. 
That's the standard of marriage that I want to hold my followers to. And Jesus goes after that for a couple reasons. One, he goes after that because he's dealing with some bad interpretations, particularly from guys like Halil. He's going to say, not that reason, not, not any reason. But he also knows that divorce is a product of sin. And Jesus has come to deal with sin. See, however we want to look at divorce, here's just the reality. Divorce is always a product of sin. Divorce is always a product of sin. Whatever that sin may be, and it might be adultery, it might be something just like laziness, but divorce is always a product of sin which kills marriages. And when left unhindered, if sin starts to run rampant throughout a culture, it will start to create what I just am going to call an easy divorce culture. This is what Halil had created in his bad interpretation of Deuteronomy 24. That by the time Jesus is raised, he, Jesus has grown up in an easy divorce culture. Because all a man had to do was go and get a certificate, sign it and say, you're not my wife anymore, get out of my house. Whatever reason he saw fit. And that was a normal thing by Jesus' day. And Jesus is coming in and saying, my followers will not play that game. That's not what marriage is about. That's not how we will see marriage in the world that I am creating in my new kingdom. Because here's, here's the other thing. And this is why I think Jesus attacks this from the men's perspective in particular. In almost every case, an easy divorce culture will favor men and lead to the oppression of women. I know I'm just kind of speaking generally there, but in almost every case, the easy divorce culture will favor men and lead to the oppression of women. So this is why Jesus is going to say in verse 32, he say, I, I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except for the case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. So who's the one committing adultery in this situation? You might say, well, it's the woman, but whose fault is it? it it's the husband's fault. He's saying, hey, if you want to take marriage this lightly, just so you know, you are multiplying sin into the world. Because it's your fault that she's having to go out and live this way because you didn't do the job you were supposed to do as a husband. Jesus is going after this understanding. So for Jesus, marriage is not just this contract you opt into when you feel good and you opt out of when you don't feel all that good anymore. Marriage is a covenant made with a suitable helper. It's zerkanegdo. That's till death do you part. And that's the standard Jesus causes, calls every one of his followers to uphold, even when sin seeks to destroy it. Oh, and by the way, sin will seek to destroy it. But even when that happens, Jesus is not interested in just giving you a checklist of reasons that you can get out of your marriage. Jesus is, an interest, Jesus is interested in you carrying a constant heart posture of reconciliation and repentance. Because marriage will always demand repentance in a world consumed with sin. See, here's the reality. Just so you guys know. You may not know this, but now, now you will. I am not the man my wife dreamed of marrying. When Haley was six years old, I don't know if she did this, I've never talked to her about it, but when Haley was six years old, when, when she was playing tea time with her stuffed animals and just pretending one day that Swint, Prince Charming would come in and sweep her off her feet and she would get married and would be, I am not that guy. I didn't do a good job of it, I promise. 
You can ask her, I have failed her expectations in so many ways. I am not perfect. I carry baggage and sin and poor communication skills and unmeetable expectations. I tend to be lazy and sloppy. And I promise you, no one in this room knows that better than Haley. Not a single person in here knows that better than my wife. She takes the brunt of my baggage and my brokenness. But she and I both know that if I can continually take those things and carry them back to God in repentance and reconciliation, then what I begin to do is not just become perfect, that's something we're striving towards, but I can still begin to become more and grow into more of the husband God desires me to be. I can begin to live and uphold the standard that God has set in this world. And that's not going to happen just through ticking boxes on a checklist. It can only happen as I submit everything I am to God and his ways. Meaning, I trust God's vision outlined in scripture for love and intimacy. That I uphold what he has said is true. And I do that no matter how much my feelings or the culture or the media tells me that I'm wrong or ridiculous for following such nonsense. Oh, and if you don't think that Jesus is in some way communicating ridiculousness and nonsense, it's because I've not read the verses right before this and talked about that. Let me jump back up for you in verse 27. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus looks at the action of adultery and he says, yes, that's wrong, but just as wrong is this ability we all have to look at someone and concoct that little movie in our head that plays out that no one else knows about. Do you understand how ridiculous that is? Jesus isn't just going after adultery. Jesus is going after that thing no one can police. Jesus is going after that thing that everyone would look at and say, Jesus, that's not a big deal. Jesus, the things that go on in my head, like, that's not hurting anybody, Jesus. Why would you worry about that? And this is what Jesus attacks. Jesus is attacking far more than just the hot button issues of our day. He's attacking the very concept of looking at someone and objectifying them. He's saying, even when that's in your brain, it's already amounted into adultery. Because Jesus knows the sinful tendencies that start up here, that they seem harmless, and in our minds we tell ourselves, oh, it's absolutely harmless. But that sin will fester and grow, and it will begin to wreak havoc on the very thing God loves, love itself. So here's Jesus' point in all of this. God's vision for love and intimacy, it's way deeper than anyone can police or regulate. I can't stand up here and say, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, because I know what you're thinking, and that's wrong. I don't get that freedom. I don't really want that freedom. I don't think you do either. The only person that can regulate that is you yourself, and Jesus says, you got to do it. So how, how are you going to regulate that? What do we do about it? I think this is where the church for a long time has come in and said, just push them down and suppress them. Just get rid of them. If, if you can just suppress them enough, then, then you won't have to worry about it anymore, and it's not worked. So what is the solution that Jesus offers? It might surprise you a little bit. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. Verse 30, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. So I had some of the deacons 
uh, sharpen some knives this morning. We're going to lay down a tarp up here. And if you want, obviously Jesus is being hyperbolic, right? That, that's not what he's getting at. But what Jesus is trying to communicate to you is lust is far bigger a problem than what the world would ever let you know. It will ruin you. It will ruin your relationships. It will ruin your marriage. It will ruin your family. It will get underneath the surface and absolutely destroy everything. So get rid of it. Jesus is talking about the severity of how lust affects us. It dehumanizes us. It leads us to objectification and oppression. It drives us away from the very thing that makes us distinct from the rest of creation, from the image of God's, and it drives us into these animalistic tendencies and primal instincts. Lust stands in direct opposition to biblical love. Like, Have you read 1 Corinthians 13? And just taking those attributes of love, did you know that lust is the opposite of every one of those attributes? Love is patient. Lust is always in a rush. L love is, it, it bears all things, it, it endures all things. And lust lasts for that fiery burn until it finally fades and you can move on to the next person to reignite that burn. Love is not self-seeking. It always puts the good of someone else in front of my own good. But lust will always want what I want when I want it. Jesus recognizes that destruction and he says, get rid of it. Deal with lust severely. And I, and I would just say, like, I, I know in the context and in the climate where we live, in a lot of ways, this, this feels prudish. It feels like we convey this idea, we as a church, we're better than all those people. Look at how ruined their lives are. Ha <laughs> ha, our lives are better. That's not what Jesus is trying to get at. Jesus is not being prudish here. But while it still may be totally unpopular for Jesus, this is about recognizing what lust is, that sin is, that sin will come to kill, still, and destroy. So you have to deal with it. Let me just navigate a little bit into practically what that means. And I'll start out by saying this. Practically what that means is probably means that we're going to have to go without the conveniences the rest of the world enjoys. Now, I've heard pastors get up on pulpits and beat the pulpit and say, you can't play this game or look at, watch this TV show or watch this movie. And I would say, like, I don't feel like that's my role to tell you what you can and cannot watch. But I would tell you, there is a line somewhere. And God will draw that line for you if you trust him. And he will convict you when you've crossed it, and you've probably felt that before. But I would just say, as kindly as I can, there is a line. And as much as the world wants to convey to you, there's no line. Just go and absorb, enjoy what you want to enjoy. I think Jesus would come in and say, it will ruin you far quicker than you realize. It will mess with your own marriage far faster than you know. So I would just say, as, as Jesus followers, there should be shows or movies that, that the rest of the world loves that like we just refuse to watch. It probably means that you should have boundaries. Maybe it means that you don't take your phone with you when you go and take a shower. Maybe it means that you just don't go to that location with your friends. Maybe it means you don't listen to that music. I, I don't know. That's something for you and God to pray about and think through and make decisions on. For, for me, what that's meant is... Uh, 
whenever I, I have an Instagram account, and Instagram loves nothing more than just like feed, uh, it has an algorithm. It's like, oh, here's a young man at 30 years old. Here's what he's going to want to look at. I'm like, that's not what I want to look at. And so what I've done is I've given my phone to Haley and had her go through all of those things and click uninterested, uninterested, so that it formulates my algorithm. So now all I get on Instagram is like golf videos. Exactly what I wanted. Thanks, Instagram. That's all I need, golf videos. Um, recently, I've been getting a lot of like pregnancy tip videos, so I get that too. Um, anyways, so I have her do that. It means that when someone texts me of the opposite gender, and no matter how innocent it is, and it's almost always innocent, um, definitely has been as we've lived here, I still let her know, hey, this person texts me just so that she's aware of it. It's not because she doesn't trust me or I don't trust her. It's because we want to make sure that the thing that God has established from Genesis 1 and 2 played out in our life is upheld the way God wants it to be upheld. His standard of love and intimacy is exactly where he wants it to be. So if there's anything that's causing you to stumble particularly within the realm of God's vision for love and intimacy, I would just say, get, get rid of it. All the while trusting Jesus has a better story. This is why Jesus is walking around in the first few chapters of Matthew, and he's going to continue after the Sermon on the Mount, saying things like, repent and believe the good news. Change the way you think and trust this story that I'm living into and I'm inviting you to live into. Trust this story. Because I would just invite you. Compare the narrative of the story of this world to the narrative of the story of Scripture. Just, just compare the two. Because the world story is going to go something along the lines of, hey, you, you were born with all of these desires and these feelings that at the minimum they should at least go and be explored, if not like totally control your identity, like just live into that. Because really, love is nothing more than one of those feelings that you, you experience. Intimacy, it's just, it's just a biological release that we all have to deal with. Marriage is one of those social constructs from a previous era that if that's your thing, that's fine, but it's really weird and like we just need to break free from that weird social construct. And, and the church's standpoint, it's repressive at best, and freedom is just breaking away from that and defining love how you're ready to define love, because ultimately, you're nothing but a byproduct of time and chance. That's, that's all you are. So live your life to the max. Maximize pleasure. Minimize pain. Do what makes you happy. And as kindly as I can, I would just say, does that lead to human flourishing? Have you taken time to critically think about the trajectory of that lifestyle? Have you at least looked at the divorce statistics of people peddling that story? I mean, just go like look up divorce statistics in Hollywood. It's not a great number. It's pretty abysmal. Is there a better story? Has God initiated a better way for life to be lived? And I think that's exactly what Jesus is getting at when he says, repent and believe the gospel. The gospel which says you're not just a product of chance. You're not an animal. You're made in the image of God. And you are made just as he created you, male or female. You're made to rule over the animal world, including the own tendencies within you, not to let them rule you, which means you have meaning and you have purpose. But that can actually only really come through the realized freedom offered in the forgiveness of Jesus. 
because sin is constantly trying to drag you away from that. And not only is it trying to drag you away from that, it's trying to drag you away from every standard God has created, which means it's dragging you away from human flourishing. Sin will ruin your marriage. It will drag you away from your family. It will ruin your job. Sin will come in and just destroy everything. But if this story is true, if Jesus really did come and he really offers us purpose and meaning and then he's rescued us from that sin, I know I'm a pastor and I know I'm just crazy biased and I understand my own bias, but I would say, think that's a far more compelling story. There's something far more deeper and, and valuable in that, because in that, marriage is not just a social construct. Intimacy is not just some bodily release. Love is not just a feeling. It's a creation by God that when upheld to his standard leads to human flourishing and life. And maybe you're out there saying, but Philip, I'm not even married, and that's fine. You don't have to be married to experience that. But I would say encourage those of your friends who are married. Seek that type of person if you're thinking one day you want to get married. And if you are, then uphold that type of marriage. Because what if First Baptist becomes the location where that's the type of love that's shared? Does it start to change the world around us? And I'm not saying it's going to create ripples that impacts Washington, D.C. It may. I don't know. It's not what we're doing it for. We're doing it so that the very families and marriages in First Baptist Portalis flourish and the kingdom of God is shown loud. So maybe you just need to think a little bit about what it means to cut off something today, something that's causing you to fall in sin, and we'll have some time that you can just pray through that. Maybe it means just spending some time and thanking God for the spouse you have, or maybe it means praying that God would just bring someone that fits these notions and upholds these standards. Whatever it means, we're just going to have a time to reflect on what does it mean to uphold God's standard of love and intimacy that's first and foremost demonstrated through the gospel he poured out to us. This is what Jesus sees as being a part of his kingdom. Father God, we thank you for your word and your grace and your love. That even when we've squandered love and we've missed the mark, you have continued to come and rescue us. And God, we know that that sin plays out in devastating ways. God, we in this room have experienced it. And yet your grace comes in over and over and gives forgiveness and kindness and wonder. So God, wherever these people are in here today, first marriage, second marriage, third, fourth, fifth, not married, God, may your grace speak a truer and better story to them. And God, whatever marriage we're in, may it be a place where God's standard, your standard of love and intimacy is upheld and the story of the gospel is shared. If there's someone that's not married, that it would be a way of proclaiming your goodness and grace and your trust that you are the ultimate provision of this world. But God, may it all speak the testament of your gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.